I was doing my research, watching shows and seeing what looks good and yours popped up and I was like, fucking cool, man. This looks a great looking show. So I thought I'd just reach out to you. That's awesome, man. I'm so fucking stoked that you did. And also really appreciate you watching. Yeah, your podcast is cool, man. I, uh, you got some great names on there. So I, you know, so it's fucking cool to talk to you. Ah, cool. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. They're all kind of buddies of mine that I've seen some of their stuff and got interested in how they did it. And I always talk to you guys anyways about the stuff. So I was like, might as well start recording some of these things. Yeah, yeah. I love the idea of just sharing brains and sharing information in general. And to have all this ridiculous (laughs) knowledge in my head, sometimes useless, but less useless when I can share it with people. Yeah, I used to do these cinematographer luncheons around our place. I just invite a bunch of people to do show and tells and we hang out and just geek out because not a lot of people get us and the stuff that we talk about all the time. So when you get a bunch of us in a room together, it's easy to talk about cool things or complain about things that we all just understand because we've been there. <laughs> I know. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. I love just nerding out with the buzz. It's great, man. I love shooting docs, man. It's like a thing that I want to do. I'm obsessed with nonfiction filmmaking. I think it's ripe. I think there's tons of opportunity to play. So I get excited about these things in a way of, wow, what a platform to be working in right now. We've never had budgets like this before in documentary. And so to play in that kind of landscape is exciting. So the show is called Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. It's been called Keep Sweet since the very beginning. The Pray and Obey was added later. But I say that because I felt like the title was just so important to me and so important to understanding the tone of what we were doing. So it's called Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. It's on Netflix, and I hope people like to watch it. It's Netflix, so I'm assuming you probably had a bit more of a budget on this show? Yeah, I don't actually know what the numbers were. I was talking to the producer the other day. I know we were budgeted for 58 days, and we shot 95, so... They did a fan-fantastic job stretching numbers and making things work. And I don't know what the actual budget is, but we definitely had a little room to play. Four episodes, 95 um, days. That's a lot, yeah. man. It's totally a lot, man. I can't stress for me the importance of time. The first five weeks of production, it was during COVID, so it was this otherworldly opportunity at the time where we all just went and lived in this mansion of an Airbnb, it was eight or nine or maybe even 10 of us all in one house in Utah. And we just hung out as a family and started making this movie. And that was just the first five weeks, but it's that vibe kind of from there, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so what was your crew was, then? Who was my crew? Yeah. What did you have? You said there was eight or nine people. Yeah. So that's total. That's including our co-director, Grace McNally, our director, Rachel Dresden. Our AP at the time was Charlotte Cooley, our researcher was Amanda Morrison. And my crew, which was the fucking best, man. I am so lucky. We had this guy, Nick Ramey, who like is going to fucking, I'm going to be asking him for work soon. So he was our gaffer, our drone DP and he shot some of the Super 8 and just all around awesome individual. Our AC was Josh Monje, who held it down, shot a little bit as well. And I want to throw out a shout out to our sound mixer, Josh Moore, as well, because he didn't just mix sound, he was fucking setting up sea stands and making it happen. I got blessed, man. I got blessed with a really excellent crew and just wonderful people to be around. That sounds great. Like you got it lined up. To the project that I'm looking at right now, we're looking. I think 60 days of shooting. It's yeah. probably going to be more, but it's 20 
one-hour episodes. You wow. had a dream of a project there. Totally. It's funny. I didn't know when I went into it that we would be doing that. And hats off to the producers because they figured out how to do that. I just think time spent is one of the most valuable assets I've ever had, generally. I think most people would probably agree with that. But I'd rather shoot a certain camera or use a certain lens in certain respects. And obviously it's a balancing act, but if I if it means more time. Just because you, you get so deep into these things and that's when you start to see things differently and you start to get ideas and it's really hard to just to just show up and be awesome all the time and just know exactly what you want and just do it. I think I'm better at being lost in something than I am at knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So the did you rent any gear to production or were you getting it all from your rental house? So we actually purchased two C three hundred Mark Threes right at the beginning of production. We decided just because we wanted to maximize our camera budget that purchasing cameras made more sense. And particularly those cameras, I used one of them on another film I did, which will be out later this year, called Descendant. And I was actually just super blown away by the color on these things. Sensors are getting so goddamn good and we shot canon 12 bit raw and i was blown away but also what's great about that camera is you can use it in an interview environment you can put a pl mount on it and within five minutes you can put an es mount on it and be shooting verite and i didn't know exactly how much of each of those things we would be doing but i knew we would probably be doing both we actually shot a lot more verite than it in the show, but I like to operate cameras that you can just hold in your hands or squeeze to your chest, or I like to be able to look around the room while I'm shooting Verite and look at my camera so I can get a lay of the land and watch all the energies that are happening while I'm actually shooting. So that camera allowed both the color science I wanted in interviews and the ergonomics that I could use in, in a Verite environment. Yeah, I'm quite familiar with the Canon Cinema Series. I've worked with the Mark II, and then I use that as a B camera for a feature I shot with the Alexa. And also, yeah, most recently, I picked up the C70. I was looking at the C300 Mark III. I went the C70 route because... Yeah, man. The RF mount on it allows me to put the speed booster on there to go full frame on the C70. And the Mark III, I don't believe, gives you that option because it's EF mount. You can't speed boost it. But, and then so if you wanted to go to a camera that does full frame, you got to go up, I think, to their C500 Mark II or the C700, whichever yeah. it was. But then you're locked into yeah, full frame and you don't have the option to go back to Super 35. So the C70, although it's less expensive, it sounded like it fit the bill. I've been shot with the C70, but I've been around it and it seems diamond. So, yeah. Um, that's awesome. I, I own an FX6, which I'm also obsessed with. As long uh, as you know how to expose that Cine EI, it can be awesome. But I've had I've helped some people do some coloring on stuff they've shot before and didn't understand how it works properly, and just they underexpose everything mm. and it just falls apart. But if you get it right, it's awesome. Yeah, that sensor like flight for sure, man. Did you test the raw versus the ProRes to see if there was an option there to go one or the other? Did you just go straight raw? That's a good question. I don't remember. I think actually what it was is I had tested on Descendant, those two codecs, and I can't remember what the other actually, it's like a XFABC codec or yeah, something like right, that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I was feeling the raw, man. I, it's just a feeling. I don't know. I didn't, I probably didn't even take the people too hard. It was just like, oh, this feels great and we can afford this to have this kind of data pipeline. And that was also Stephen 
Altabella, who works at ARC, did a great job with that. And, uh, is that your colorist? So did Josh, who was, I know our colorist, oh my God, my colorist, Marcy Robinson, is the greatest. I'm so grateful for her. So actually, she I want to actually want to ask. Yeah, I want to ask you about that a little bit because I noticed some of your interviews. You have your windows with a different color tone than your subject, and I know that the highlights are getting pretty similar in color tone, but the skin tones look neutral, and your windows looked warm or dusty or green, or they had a different tone to them. So I was wondering if you were. I assume you probably weren't gelling your windows or gelling your key light so that the rest of the stuff would fall away. I assume that it was probably done in post to give you that color separation. Yeah, yeah. We were gelling windows a lot. Sometimes we, <laughs> it was actually, it was funny. We, the, the first interview, we just like scout, happened to scout during sunset. And I didn't know too much about what I wanted the interviews to look like going into it. Like, we had an idea. We knew we wanted them to have this sort of like sharper modern feel, and so we chose Master Primes. And the other thing I knew was that like the sweeter. I looked at the archival, and I and we thought that the more vibrant, the more colorful the show is, the more haunting it is. And so that was the baseline of it. And then we sort of designed the look of the interviews, one interview at a time. And the first one. We just happened to scout during sunset, and it was this like, and the one of Ruby was in episode two, and I think she continues a little bit through it, but she's mostly in episode two, and it was just fucking gorgeous. Like we went into this place, and I was like, we can't shoot the whole interview during sunset, unfortunately, but we can gel the windows. And I accidentally bought the wrong MD gel. I bought ND plus CPO. Ah. <laughs> That and I was yeah. like, "Shit, man, let's put that on the windows." And so we basically went with an eight-hour interview that looked like as close to sunset as I could make it feel. So we gelled a lot of windows. The key light was often either we had three units. We had a Joe Grade Hundred, a Light Mat Four, and a Light Mat Two L. Both of those were plus, and the key light was usually some combination of. Either a joker broke three times through a window or the light map for like through, mm, through 250 and opal a lot of the time. Yeah, because the, the interviews, like, um, they were very soft, had a really nice wrap on them. The shadow didn't feel like it was a light coming into them. It always felt like it was from a window, just natural. Like, sometimes it has a bit more crispness to it, but I noticed that when it was more crisp, it was more sidey, so then the shadow didn't fall off the nose. It just had a dark side of the face and a light side when it was harder. Yeah. I was really afraid of lighting for a really long time. I was just so intimidated by it because I don't really have so much of a technical background, and I guess I just spent a lot of time shooting natural light because I was so afraid of real lights and of like cinema lights and just started to like the way that natural light plays on people, and so... When I started being a little less afraid of lights, I just started to try and make it look like I enjoyed the natural light looking. I don't love interviews that feel super just like a subject is really lit. I like it to feel like a scene, something that you can just sit in with the characters. doesn't feel like they're like in the spotlight or something. It was usually like a, a light map board through something really soft, broken a few times, and then a 2L for fill. And we used a pretty high contrast LUT on set as well. These amazing LUTs, especially for airy cameras, they're made by a company called The Brand, and they're called Mini LUT. 
what uh. I like about them is they have basically flavors of the heavier contrast of the same flavor, and we use the heaviest contrast. And what I liked about it was that when I'd look at the monitor, I'd want to just bump up the fill more. That was like my instinct because the blacks were so crushed and lit. And so it, I think, maybe helped us create a nice wrap in that sort of way. And also just helps me create a richer negative because I knew that I wanted it to feel super vibrant. And rounding out your question, when we got to color, Marcy just, she's a printer and a photographer and just an incredible artist. And she just took what we did in the field and made it sing. I wish I could tell you what her magic is, but she works very organically. And she was a photo printer for a long time. She worked with Nan Golden like all types of photographers and she, she approaches it with this very organic feel. So we were gelling windows, we were lighting, but she just came in and blew it out of the water. Honestly, I'm so shocked and impressed by her work. It's crazy. Yeah, she did a beautiful job. I thought you guys shot Panavision lenses. It was, must have read somewhere else that was incorrect. It was Master Primes? Yeah, yeah. So Penny, they literally put a camera in my hands when no one else would. And when we went into the development on the show, I was actually living in New Orleans at the time. And Steve Grew at Panavision there helped us in development in January 2020. So Panavision supported us in development. And that's why we they put a shout out on their Facebook page that said we shot Panavision Primos, which in development, we, we shot with Penny stuff. But in the actual show, we ended up renting out of Abel in New York and shot on Master Prime. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm just digging quickly into that, the brim, to see if I can find their Lenny Lutz. Did they sell them too then, or how did you get your hands on them? Yeah, they're pretty pricey. I was wondering, yeah. 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 And at the time, I think now they have even more. Like, I was using the Airy Lut on the C300 on our monitors, and it was a little off, but enough that I could reference. It had what I needed to see. Yeah. which again was just that pretty thick contrast curve and my saturation it gave me an idea. I, again, I knew I wanted the look of the show to feel vibrant in that kind of way. And so it, it was a good placeholder for our shoot. Yeah. it's so They have the Linny and the Cine Lutz. There's two of them. I guess the Linny was the one you looked at for the Log C, Harry? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're like four ninety five, five hundred bucks. Something like that. It was a great purchase. It's a total cheat code if you want to make your dailies look good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I highly recommend it. That's good to know that they work nicely on the uh, the C300. I found that too, that a lot of the airy stuff looks pretty good on the C300 C-Log. Totally. And I think if you want, you can do like a conversion line. Yeah. yeah. Just like a color transform and yeah. pack that into a lot, which I've done before as well when they used to not have Sony stuff now i think they do but i have done that with the lutz with some success as well did you shoot c-log two or three on the c300s it was c-log two ah you went for a bit more detail in the shadows and the highlights then yeah did you do that for your feature as well for defendant yeah yes it was c-log two we shot that film for four years so i used the c300 mark one the c300 oh wow Yeah. That our colorist, Sam, oh God, Sam Daly, uh, he's incredible. And I'm blanking on his last name right now. I think it's Sam Daly, but he works at Light Iron. He, he oh. made it look like it was one camera the whole time. 
Yeah, those guys are great with color. Yeah. I've been back and forth on that log three and log two, and I've been shooting the log three, even though it doesn't have the same bit of detail in the shadows and maybe a stop less in the highlights. I found it's just a cleaner image. It doesn't bake the noise into everything. So when I was trying to match the Alexa, you know, when the Alexa, when you bring up the shadows, it doesn't like introduce color noise like the red would in some sense. It just gets smooth and there's just nothing there. It's either there or it's just like smooth and goes gray almost at a certain point rather than getting noisy. If you're shooting at like a base 800 on the Alexa. So I tested that with the C-Log 2 and 3 and I found that 2, I would raise my blacks up and it would get information there, but I didn't feel that it was usable information just because it was so noisy. So I went, I just generally I've been shooting the C-Log 3. I lose a bit of the dynamic range in the shadows, but I find that if I raise them up, generally if I'm going to be shooting at something that dark, then I probably want it that dark and I don't want them to be introducing extra noise from the sensor. Just seems totally. a little smoother to yeah, me. I'm trying to think back as to why I decided to go C-Log 2 and C-Log 3. And most likely I think the less played better in C-Log 2, and it was that simple for me. I knew C-Log 2 had more shadow detail, and I also just, compared to the C-300 Mark II, found that the C-300 Mark III was cleaner. So that was my thought process there. I know with the C-300 Mark II, I found that I could push it to about 6,400 ISO, and that was its cap before it started to get noisy. And then the Mark III, I could go one stop higher, I found, on the ISO. Oh, wow. And it was still pretty clean. Like you'd be hard pressed to like really notice a huge difference. So I haven't been afraid to push that camera's ISO. Totally, totally, yeah. We generally shot at 800. I know we didn't carry a map box and we didn't carry external NDs. So there were a few times where I would bump up to 1600 to get the stop I wanted. And that was to me totally acceptable. And beyond that for the interviews, I never, I really tried to not even go beyond a thousand, but oh, wow. uh, there were a few Verite environments where we shot 3,200. But again, it's just all dependent on the kind of look and the feel and your tolerance for the texture that camera gets. And I think I just wanted the show to feel rich and thick. Yeah. Which I don't feel as much at higher ISOs. Yeah. It's only I find that when you did two shot interviews that you went wider on the lens. It seems like you were pretty particular about, or at least consistent, probably a better word, with your what lens you use for your wide and for your tight, if you want to tell me about that. Yeah, sure, man. I tend to like interviews that feel like the person in front of the camera might have sat in that spot even if we weren't interviewing them. I want them to feel conversational in that kind of way, like you're in the space sitting in a part of the space, and I don't know if this comes through, but this is at least my thought process of like, well, you're just naturally in the space with them. And that sometimes involves moving furniture so that you can put them in a spot where the light is good, and sometimes you're lucky and the furniture and the light are going to work together. And then as far as lensing goes, our A cam, which was the one closest to their eye line in, in the vibe of just that conversational feel was almost always a 35. Yeah. Uh, to me, the 35 generally on super 35 feels, it feels just like you're there in the space. It's not distorting it from a wide perspective. It doesn't compress it from a long perspective. It just to me feels pretty close to just sitting there with them. 
And so I wanted ACAM to feel like that, but you were just at a conversational distance. And then for BCAM, we had a 75 and we had a 135. And sometimes we would switch during the interviews and use both. Sometimes it would just be one of them, depending on what the space allowed, how far back I could get. But to me, I wanted BCAM to feel a little more internal. I find for me, long lenses, they often feel a little just more in someone's head, maybe because you see less of the background at the same distance. So I don't know what it is. It's just I get a feeling to me that B-Camp feels a little more internal and off-access. It's like you're seeing the character in a way that they're not necessarily aware. So it, it feels like you're maybe getting into their head a little more. And so that was my two-angle approach. It's like one that feels just conversation, like you're sitting there with them, and the other that gave the editors the opportunity to feel a little more internal, maybe a little more closer to their emotional state, if that makes sense. Yeah, I gotta say, you hit it, like, bang on for making it feel like they're in a space that's their space and that they'd be sitting there. I'm actually glad that you mentioned it that way because I knew something felt right, but looking at the images from, like, to stills just reviewing again off your website, everyone seems like they're super comfortable, just that's where they would be. <laughs> yeah, there's something about that to me that always feels compelling. To me, it's like a little, I don't know. I've never thought about why necessarily, but it, I guess maybe it feels a little more immersive or something to just come across someone in what feels like a natural sitting spot. It's like we just happened upon them for a conversation rather than this very set up thing that maybe can look good, but, uh, and maybe if the film is right for this feel, like you go with that, but where you feel the presence of the filmmakers deciding to make a thing or something. And the other part about interviews to me is it's an opportunity for world building. It's an opportunity to immerse you in the world of the story. Yeah. If you watch like Errol Boris film, it feels like you're in a fucking world when you watch his interview. Yeah. I think that maybe goes with that as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then there is a pretty good consistency with the softness that comes from Mostly you're lighting on people's faces. Did you spend more time on set flagging or more time in post flagging? I don't remember doing too much windowing later on. I'm sure Marcy made me look better than I am at certain points. But we controlled the light a fair amount on set. I was pretty grateful to Charlotte, who was our AP for a lot of these interviews, because she really helped us work in how to get time in these spaces. And... This was during COVID, so you know some of the interviews take place in people take place in people's homes. And some of them we actually found the locations ourselves. So when you do that, it does allow you to sometimes spend a little more time and be more delicate with lighting when you're not invading someone's home, which is tough sometimes with gear and you have to be thoughtful. It's like the most important thing is that they sit down and feel comfortable and trust the people that are there in their homes. And it's a, it's a balancing act between like how much I'm going to flag something and how much I don't want to bother the people anymore that are waiting to shoot. It's nice because a lot of this stuff you don't see much throw from the source of light that's on the character, except for the odd shot when there's a shadow on the back walls a bit. But for the most part, it feels fairly contained. You're just not lighting up the environment. You really keep it isolated. Yeah, it was pretty side lit. So when it's side lit like that, I think it's easier to flag it off the back wall a little bit because you're not throwing light directly onto the back wall you're throwing it to the side our bread and butter was, was a light map for through 250 and opal 
vibed on the song for the flop on the side. We did a ghost light a few times, which I really enjoy. What's the ghost um, light? So you, you can take the 2L or you can take the light map 4 and you put it on a C stand and you point it straight down, like straight down to the ground. And you wrap the back of it with an ultra bounce and you cover the front of it with whatever dip you want. So we were using bleach muzz for most of it, maybe bleach for a little bit, but for some of the night interiors, like Thomas's interview, he's a guy sitting on a couch. can't remember which episode it ends up falling in, but Thomas Jeff's, there's a practical in the back and then we used a ghost light, which again, it's just a light pointing straight down with an ultra bounce on the back of it and some diffusion on the front of it. And maybe a little light map to well off some bees for fill. Where would the placement be in relation to the character? Directly above them? Just off the axis by a couple feet in front of them? Behind them? Just directly to the side? For the ghost light, it was usually to the side off axis. Maybe at a 45 or maybe even more than that. Even more sidey than that. And then I'd use fill like behind camera for some wrap. But yeah, it's, just, it's cool because it's just a, it's basically just like a glowing beautiful source um i I think i learned it from this gaffer trent mcgray who called it i think he called it a ghost light yeah it's interesting uh, it's a book light in some sense if the ultra bounce is kicking back into the muzz totally yeah totally but it was nice because it's controlled in a way where it's like the whole thing it's self-contained because you're wrapping it in the ultra bounce like on the side and back of the lamp and so you're not it's not really spilling all over the place. It's like fairly controlled. And then I think we probably netted off his shirt a little bit. And I think actually on Thomas, I think we put a little power window on his sweater as well later on. My whole thing with power windows is they're great. You just have to know when you're going to be able to use them. Yeah, this stuff looks great. What about the, the close-ups? I noticed some of them you would go slightly higher angle looking down on people usually. Or... There's other ones where you would center punch close up with little lead room for where the person was speaking. Totally. I want to say that those were a little bit instinctual for each character and what felt right, what looked good. And that was a conversation between me and Grace and Rachel. I often just give them options and they're like, I like that one. And it's great. I like to work in that way where I just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And so a lot of those angles, we were just playing. And we knew it was longer lengths for that, but aside from that, it wasn't, we weren't too precious about like how it needed to be. And I think we tried to mix it up in, in the relative limited way you can mix up that kind of angle just to keep audiences surprised a little bit. So it doesn't just feel like you're cutting to the same thing over and over. I did notice that like when you would cut to some people's close-ups, it wasn't totally consistent which I found was nice because it made other people stand apart a little bit more. Even though the framing was a bit more unconventional sometimes on the close-up, I think that really helped Mm. it to make that character stand out from another character's close-up. Cool, man. I'm glad it worked in that way for you. Yeah, I felt it. I'm hyper-aware of this stuff sometimes because I'm so engulfed in documentary when I'm in it. So whenever I see stuff that's, yeah, I see, okay, why, what? I don't yeah, know. If I, yeah. When you were exposing with your windows in the background and any of the highlights, do you generally keep within your log range, keep it from clipping, or do you let things go? I try and keep things from clipping unless I absolutely have to use moving. But we ended windows, we netted windows. I tried to keep 
practicality because the interviews we did were super long. Rachel and Grace would often sit for hours with people. And so the challenge for that for us and for me and for the crew is how do we keep this relatively consistent over that amount of time. And that sometimes meant, well, we're going to be shooting into the night. I don't have the light to make it look like it's daylight outside. So in this in that particular space, so like, let's make this a night look. Does that feel right for this character? If not, we have to talk about schedule. So it was this balancing act and knowing where the sun was, knowing how I could block the sun. For Elisa Wall's daytime interview, there's that back window in the kitchen that we were ending down to match. She was lit with a light map for and a 2L for Phil, and then there's a Joker kind of coming across the frame in the background as sort of sun coming in, and then we balance the outside with ND gel on the window, but then the sun would come through that window in the back there, so we tented, I think, like an 8 by solid over that, not tented tables, an 8 by solid over that window to control it. So we were trying to keep our highlights when we could. Again, if you notice a highlight go out, and your character's in like in a super emotional moment, you're not going to say shit, you're going to let the <laughs> highlight go. <laughs> What they're saying and respecting their time and them talking to you is, to me, more important than like a blown highlight. But we did try and control it where we could. Yeah, well, it looks great. I can jump into some other stuff, but anything else you want to say about any of the lighting stuff? Yeah, I hope I'm not babbling on like a crazy person that I am. But yeah, no, I really, really appreciate you looking at these things so closely and it's really fun to talk about it. I think lighting-wise, that kind of covers everything. I think very early on, Rachel loved the look of practicals in the frame, and so that was another thing we played with. I know, that's always a challenge. It's so easy to put a practical in the frame, but it's also so easy to yeah. just have every shot's got a lamp in it. <laughs> but it gives you well, your contrast. Yeah. When you need that contrast, it's an easy way to get something in there. trying to balance how often we have to sit at tables that was like a whole thing trying to put them in chairs without tables sometimes but still hopefully that it feels a little natural the tables are nice and as far as creating that feeling of something natural because like people sit and talk at tables yeah i'm not a big fan of a chair in a room with a sofa chair is a different story but like a stool or something like that they're like just sit them down so, ah, would they sit there yeah, yeah. this doesn't feel right unless that's what you're after totally yeah and like you said The drone stuff, you said your gaffer had his own drone, I guess, for this stuff for you? We shot most of it on Inspire 2. He used the Mavic for some of it as well. I cannot underplay how fucking incredible Nick is at the drone. And it's not a technical thing. It's like he's just got an eye and a feeling for landscapes and for the way that those cameras move. And he shot a lot of that drone stuff by himself. I'm a big believer in like when you find someone who's really fucking talented like Nick, let him go do their thing. And he would just go out, especially during those first five weeks. He would just go out and he would shoot the landscape. And we'd come back and we'd look at it and talk about it and we'd say what we were liking and what we weren't. Both of us were part of that conversation. But he was an aerial cinematographer. He's also a pilot. He's the one who had the idea to put there's at one point a shot of a camera like on the bottom of a plane. That was totally his idea. But he just went out and he added a sort of scale and a texture to the story that we wouldn't have had without him. 
a part of the look of the show. And it was fun, but we would, there was a hot tub at our Airbnb. So, you know, we would just hang out in the hot tub every night and be like, man, this place is crazy. It feels like we're on like an alien planet here in Utah. And this is the only place something like this could exist. And he'd be like, yeah. And he would tell me how he felt and we'd be like, cool, now go shoot that, you know? And he would just go out and do his thing. So I can't stress how integral he was to the show and the look. I personally find the aerials incredible. Oh, um, yeah. They have a beautiful tone really, to them. I yeah. really, I tip my hat off to him and again to Marcy, our colorist, who came in and just made the drone look like, like it does. Well, actually, you know what? There was one shot that I remember, only because I know it's really difficult to do, is the drone of the cops at, I think it was cops at night. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I actually wasn't even on set for that. I was just Nick doing his thing. I don't know if, if you guys shot earlier in the day when you still had a bit of ambience, or, but the, the lights were s- still feeling like they were lighting the environment from the car lights. And I know a lot of those drones yeah, just don't do well at night. Totally. We'd have to ask Nick. Yeah. To have <laughs> yeah, he did a great job. Yeah, yeah. man. We did a great job. What else was I going to ask you about? Super 8 stuff. Is that something uh, that you... Did you pitch that, or was that was that the production that pitched the Super 8? I'm trying to remember. I'm so bad at remembering conversations, but Rachel had just watched a film called Stories We Tell. My good friend Iris Ng shot that. She's a local in Toronto. She does a fantastic job. We actually we scanned all of the regular 8 home movies for Sarah for the film at our studio at Frame Discrete. And we did the first couple tests for them for the color negative that they had shot as well. But they ended up having a contract, I think, with Technicolor in the end. And it went there. But to be honest, I wasn't super happy with the color because I went and saw it in the theater. And I was like, why does my Super 8 not look the way that I normally would treat it? And then I was like, oh, we didn't do some of that stuff that went somewhere else. But but yeah, no, that was that's cool that she mentioned that one because that was a great little film. They shoot a lot of Super 8. And I, I think when she talks about the Super 8, she says we were going to maybe do it digitally and treat it. But I, during COVID, I was shooting a lot of film photography just in my spare time since I had a lot of it. And I was like, let's shoot film and let's just shoot Super 8. And they made it work for us. We debated, should we use a system that would feel more relevant timing-wise to bleed with the archival a little more closely? A lot of it was early to. Thousand, the timeline, there's no stuff in the show from the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. It's a real mix, but a lot of it is not film. A lot of it is video. And we still decided to go with the Super 8 because of the feeling. It has, again, like this idea, this cheap, sweet title, right? It was so inspiring because it's like the sweeter it is, the more, the darker it is. I looked at a lot of the archival early on. They shared of what we had early on. That was even a fraction of what we got. But there's just a feeling of Super 8 to me that has like a nostalgia and a color that is sweet. And that's scary to me. And I think that's probably why we ended up doing it, aside from the fact that it's so fun to just have a little Super 8 camera and cruise around with it and shoot stuff. Totally. Um, Do you remember, was it your own camera or was it somebody else's? Do you remember what it was? It was a pro. And we got it off of, we had, the problem shooting Super 8, you don't always know that they're going to work very well. Yeah. We 
got one in the beginning and it had some serious registration issues, which ends up, it was, some of it was salvageable, some of it wasn't, it was just like too much. Yeah. But when we, for some of the more robust recruit stuff that we did where we were like setting up and spending some money, we got a serviced one from Dual in New York. It was another, I think it was also a Pro 14, but it was slightly different than the one we had. So I don't know if it was like some sort of offshoot of that model. Yeah, there's a black um, one and there's a silver one. One's a yeah, electronic exactly. and one's so the XLS. We started, we started with the silver one and yeah. we ended with the black one. Yeah, they're good cameras. Canons usually are pretty reliable. One of the nice things about Canon when they released those cameras is they, when they made the name for the camera, the 814, you can tell me if you know all this stuff, but... No, the, I don't know. The 8 stood for an 8 to 1 zoom and the 14 stood for a 1.4 lens. So if you had, yeah, it makes sense. Like finally someone's doing something with a name that actually makes some sense. What does C300 stand for? What does C, like, and so yeah. then if you had like a Canon 514, it was five to one zoom, 1.4 lens, or a, a 1012 right. is 10 to one zoom, 1.2 lens, a 310, three to one zoom, 1.0 lens. <laughs> they all made sense. And then if you had an XLS one, there was an existing light shutter, so it would let you go between a 150 or a 220 degree shutter, so you could get more light if you needed it for the night stuff. Oh, cool. Very cool. I, I had no idea. I think I had used the Pro 814 on my music video I had done a long time ago and just had fun with it. So it fit the bill of just throw enough, and but not too complicated. No, not yeah. too Thing that we could just carry around with us and shoot as we needed. Did you do any recreations that were supposed to be video? Like the project that I'm working on right now, they want to do a whole recreation section. That was where they originally hired me for was the recreations. And then I said I wanted to be doing the interviews as well. If I'm doing one, I got to be involved in both. And yeah. I wasn't sure to what extent. If you guys did actually recreate some of the stuff with kids walking around in those outfits, you did a fucking great job. But if you didn't, you got some great stock footage there's a lot of different types of what we would call recrees there are scenes where there are people in flds dresses there's one where the abba song is playing and actually nick shot i think it was actually grace's co-director's sister kate i want to say running through a field but i could be wrong that yeah i remember that was one of yeah that was super eight and then you had the drone shot from above i think if that's the right one i'm thinking of Yes, exactly. Nick shot that one. The other, like, recreate, like, for example, there's the pretty dark stuff about the women talking about being in Rulong's bedroom. That there's, like, a sort of Christmas wreath above the bed and a sort of flash of light on the bed. Those were actually shot in Staten Island. And those we'd call recreates as well, even though they had no characters in them, just feelings of the space. There was, like, the Hotel Caliente sequence where their child brides. And for that, we just went out to the hotel and shot a lot of the hotel. And then later on, they sprinkled in a little bit of a, a beautiful shot that Nick did of some slippers. And there were children by the staircase. Thing. So we did shoot like lit, produced, recreate stuff. And also just like what we saw. It was a mix. Actually, in particular, when the cops arrived and started pulling all the kids and putting them on the bus and all that stuff. Because there was cameras inside of 
where they were asking the kids if they were being treated properly. And I wasn't sure if that was all footage that someone had shot there at the time with their high eight camera or whatever. Or if he did re- recreate with the cops in like SWAT jackets or flak jackets and things like that around. No, we didn't really do any of that. The archival in the show to me is the show. Not to take away from everything we did, but our crew did such an amazing job with the archival. Oh, it's incredible. That's and why I was asking you if it was recreate because I'm like, how did they get so much good footage? Uh, if you guys recreated this stuff, you were on point. Yeah, we sprinkled in some of our stuff. We did shoot with a high camera a few times. But no, I'm, Amanda Morrison, who is our researcher, was, I try and stay, keep my head just poked in during while things are editing just to stay involved as much as I can. And they started editing while we were still shooting. And I would watch a cut and be like, oh yeah, you should look at file 7983. That's really great shot. Like it was insane. And that kind of level of detail and research, I think, is a huge part of what makes the show. And the archival to me is, I don't even know how they got all of this. That goes for the whole crew. Yeah, it's um, wild. But it's so impressive what they were able to find. It felt like some of the stuff, to have a consistency, they put TV scan line effect over top of some of it. Yeah, we did that with Marcy at Night Shoot. I don't remember how the scan lines exactly were created, but we scan lined a lot of stuff in color. Just to make it feel a bit more different from the rest of it. Even the color of that stuff, it just had that washed out, kind of desaturated tone to it, which also helped with just feeling different from the rest of your stuff. Yeah, that was like what I really appreciated about Marcy, aside from just how well she treated the footage we shot, was how well she treated the archival as well. She treated every frame of archival like it was something we shot. And I think that helps bring the show into a space where there's cohesion in the world. Even if it feels distinct as like its own footage, it united the world in a really nice way. I think we often underestimate the power of color in documentary in general. It's an insanely powerful tool. And I think it's important to push for. I think as the doc landscape changes and a lot of sort of more people who have backgrounds in fiction are shooting doc stuff, it's that kind of wisdom is bleeding over and there's so much opportunity to convince and hopefully you're working with producers like the ones we had that have such an open mind to like actually investing in color and making that a part of the budget and part of the show. It's gotta be like, it's such an impact when you have something that's treated well. You look at a lot of younger DPs who are coming up that don't have the experience on set to understand the politics on set or just to deal with subjects and clients and just the stuff that we've done for so many years that we understand. But you look at their reel and you're just like, fuck me, like this stuff is incredible. And that the colors they had working on their stuff just makes them look so good. (laughs) Totally, totally. The colorists are all making them look good. It's a crazy powerful tool and a huge part of the image pipeline. Yeah. And especially in Doc, it's just, for some reason, it's not often utilize no all we need from color is to make it look like it did and i don't even know what that means yeah yeah what do you mean make it look like it did what did it look like you saw it differently probably yeah Yeah. and Um, i've been told by one of our posts people on our project before if you want to you can bake your look in on set 
and then we won't need to do any color afterwards and it guarantees that you get the look you're after and i'm like you know what i can do that but the reason why i'm shooting log on set is because we may not have the time or the budget to be able to light it the way that you need to have your LUT be a generic LUT that works on everything. Because as soon as you apply that LUT and you realize that you didn't have the tools to sculpt the light the way it needs to be or to ND windows or to do certain things, then that LUT is being generically applied and it's just not going to work for everything. You either spend time on set and money on set or you spend time and money in post. It's hard to balance one to the other and just walk into one or the other. It's like shooting in 709 all the time and just burying it in 709. If I just had half an hour more on set, I could get the contrast ratio that I need because these walls are all white. So I got to throw up some flags, but you don't have time for that. And the LUT's not going to do it justice. but helping them to understand what the flexibility is yeah. with a log file. Yeah. And hopefully you get the opportunity to work with people who want to try things. Just try things that aren't the normal way it's done or something like that. And we were really lucky on this one to have those kinds of brains involved. Like Grace is the co-director and producer. She just, she's like, cool, yeah, let's fight for these things. Let's make it happen. Let's find it in the budget. And I think it goes a long way. Yeah, shows in the in, And Rachel, the too, like the buy-in of the director, like understanding, oh, yeah, that really can make a difference in how the show feels. Did you come from uh, uh, a film shooting background, or did you come from video, or what was your background? A little bit of both. I'm 33 years old, so I was born in 89, if that gives any kind of time stamp on yeah. where I come from and what I've done. But in college... I did film studies in college, not film production, but we did get the opportunity to shoot 16. And so I learned on 16 at that point, and also I was doing still photography. So I was shooting still photography film around that time that I was in college, like the red one had just come out. And I got to shoot on that. And it was like, whoa, this, this is something. Like, this is something exciting and people were shooting on 5Ds and things like that so I came up with a little bit of a mix I shot 16 a few times and again I've done still photography and things like that on film but I don't have like a crazy background in film but my school is very adamant in learning on film not just from a shooting perspective but from a cutting perspective because we would cut on the steam bag we'd cut on flatbeds oh you did and that's interesting you learn, yeah, yeah yeah you learn I'm not an editor but learn a lot about shooting when you cut on a flatbed so i was really lucky to be able to do that yeah like our film school was at humber college in toronto and we didn't actually cut anything on film hands like hands to film we shot a lot of stuff but it was always telecine it was like all 16 and then we had one prof john price he's a cinematographer here as well he had us doing a lot of hand processing, hand cranking, Bolex stuff. And Jeff Winch is also a prof there. Like I remember the first time he loaded up a Bolex and made it run. He put it on, turned it on, and then put his ear to it. Everyone kind of went quiet. And he's like, hear that purr? And we're like, what? <laughs> that's the sexiest yeah. sound you'll ever hear. So that's the sexiest sound you'll ever hear. And we're like, oh. huh. Okay. And that was just like an intro to like really being passionate about film. And it's also really special to shoot digital, yeah. especially in docs, to be able to roll the way we can roll. It's really cool. Not something that existed yeah. forever. Well, I'll tell you, this project that I'm working on right now, I've been 
playing around with a couple different things. I got my hands on a set of those Helios lenses that were rehoused by the Ukrainian guy's iron glass. They're cool. I've been playing with that. They have a, a really interesting vintage feel to them. Lower contrast. The, I don't know if you've used a Helios lens before, but they have a very interesting way they deal with the backgrounds. They kind of swirl around your character. So if you had, say you had a round street light out of focus and you put it dead center of your frame, it would be a perfect circle. You put it on the left side of your frame, it'll become an oval. You put it in the top left corner and it becomes skewed so that if you had something behind them, like trees or something like that, which you may have seen before in a lot of stills photographs, it just seems like everything swirls around the person because the only part of the image that's actually flat is the dead center and everything else is just distorted. It's what, cool. Like? I like it. I think it's cool for the right thing if you can get away with a busier background because also as an example, I don't know, I, I had something that was a metal, like a U-line shelf, just with a bunch of specular yeah. highlights all behind you. And then when you have a lens that's got a really nice, perfectly circular bokeh, all that stuff is really beautiful, calm in your background. And then when I had one of these Helios lenses on there, it was like just craziness in the background all the things were different shapes sizes all the bokeh was just all it was a mess but it was a beautiful mess in its own way so you got to make a decision if you can be into something like that and you like that busyness or whether it's just way too much well i mean what's the feeling you're after yeah like what do you what what do you want the show to feel like for this one i don't think that's going to work for me also because i was considering it for some of the interviews but just it it flares too much they're beautiful flares, but when they get across your image, when someone's sitting down or you got to have a ghosting flare or anything like that, that hazes your image just because you're pointed towards a window and that sits in your frame for an interview, it just doesn't, yeah. you got to be a bit cleaner. I'll put like a promist, a black promist or something like that on there to make my highlights on things bloom. Yeah, yeah. But not haze over the whole image, which yeah, this, I don't think these lenses are the right thing for what I was trying to do. Yeah, I can't tell you how brave I feel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I can put that lens there. There will be no problems. Yeah. It's very great. Oh, yeah. You want to shoot? We don't have any light. Yeah. We can shoot right over It's you fine. Know, yeah. Yeah. Certain lenses you can feel a little braver with, which is sometimes nice in documentary because, like you said, like sometimes you have a window in the frame that you just have to shoot with. And sometimes it can be a little hectic when you have glass that. Too much character. You're just a little, yeah, exactly. A little more temperamental or something but yeah like, which can be amazing if that's the feeling and that's the look don't get me wrong but yeah yeah i think we might we like because i own a set of these already i might use a set of the canon cinema primes they're fast they're reliable <laughs> they're workhorses they just work no particular different look to them but i know i can trust them and i'll get some good images off of them i think the l series primes are like the same glass essentially yeah those things look great so you know, it, it, depending on what kind of mechanics you want. It's, and then you can shoot barricade with those kinds of things really easily, too. Yeah, yeah, and they're full frame, uh-huh. too. So with that speed booster, giving it full frame on the C70, I can live on, like, 50 mil, which puts it probably closer to like 40 or 37, something yeah. in that range. So you get a bit more field of view and still have that shallowness, which is nice. Yeah, I was doing tests last night with shooting in Super 16 crop mode on a set of Zeiss high-speed lenses. 
that are PL mount on it because I was thinking maybe I'll do some of the reenactment stuff in Super 16 crop mode on the camera and use older lenses. Give it a bunch of texture. I need to play around with it a bit more, but I just don't know if it's the right thing for this one. Sounds exciting. The nice thing about that whole speed booster thing is that you can take a 50 and make it a, a wider lens and then make if you can't carry two lens packages, you've got the one that can be kept as a full frame and one can be kept as just standard super 35. Totally. I love that. Cool, man. Sounds like you got some ideas for your show, which is exciting. Yeah, it's nice. The The producers basically said this is a true crime show that the network wants to do and they've never done one before. So how do you want to do it? I was like, what do you mean? How do I want to do it? There's no structure. I get to build this however I want. They're like, yeah, pitch us some ideas. Let's do something creative. I'm like, if you guys are up for it, like I'll pitch you some ideas. And if you like the way I'm going, like I want this to be something that's going to be up for some accolades and some awards and things like that. And if that's, if you give me full support on that, then let's do it. And so they're all, it's just tough because there's a lot to shoot in very little time. So we got to be very creative. I'm some of those ones that's hard to overcome at times. We've changed our approach for some of the interviews. We're going to use our location scouting Airbnbs for where we're going to stay and then be yeah, able to pre-light and have them land exactly. We'll have the subjects come to us because the stories are older stories. So even if we went to their homes, they're not necessarily the homes that they were in when the story happened. So might as well pick right. a location that looks interesting and I've seen they're it beforehand. Older. And we don't have to travel, so I can pre-light before they even get there, whichever the subjects are. It is nice to be in their home and all the things like that, but this is just seems more practical. Yeah, it's a balance, like everything's a balance. But I think we did similarly. There were times where we would stay where we were shooting just for the ease of, I'm trying to remember if we did that. Maybe we didn't, but I have done that before, and it's nice because you can pre-light the day before or you can take the camera out and just walk around the house while everyone else is off and just look at things and find angles and try and see the space in new ways. I always find the more time I spend in the space, the better I see it. Yeah. Uh, so there, there is that benefit to staying at the place you're shooting. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking for over an hour. I'd probably wrap it up, but maybe we'll catch up again some more and talk about some of the other stuff just in general, even if we don't record this stuff. Yeah, of course, man. Hey, look, I really appreciate you connecting. And if you have questions about your show, and I can be of any help at all, or just thinking stuff through, I'm so happy to chat. Oh, I appreciate that. That's great. Yeah. Well, you're giving some good insight already. I've got some, some new ideas for what I may pitch to them. We have a call tomorrow, so we'll drop a few things. And actually, I was trying to figure out my LUT workflow, so I'm going to take a look at these ones that you were looking at as well. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, this stuff is pretty good for now. Yeah. No, man. You, you really covered everything. <laughs> I a lot of things there. Yeah, I hope I didn't just babble. No, it's great. I don't, I don't get to just nerd out on this stuff, so it was fun to do that, man. Cool, man. I'm glad you, you appreciate it. I like the opportunity. Sweet. All right. No worries. Cool. Thanks. All right. From one Justin to the other, it's been a pleasure, man. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right. Take it easy. You too.